Um, so um, welcome everyone. Um, tonight is the first event of our um, of the year in our parent enrichment program at Oakcrest. And Terry Collins, um, who is the mother of four Oakcrest alum, is the director of the program. Terry's over here. Thank you, Terry, for organizing this lovely evening. Um, the parent enrichment program at Oakcrest includes formal and informal ways um, that we have of enriching and supporting our parents in their mission to guide their children. So this is our, our kickoff event uh, of the year. Um, so I'm going to just start by um, just opening it up here. Um, Ocrest is inspired by the spirit of Opus Dei, whose founder, St. Josemaria, used to say to parents and educators who were involved in schools like Ocrest all over the world, um, he would say the most effective order of priority is parents, teachers, and then students. He was very close to the parents, benefactors, and teachers who started the very first school, um, inspired by the spirit of Opus Dei, um, and he prayed for them a lot. He was sending letters. This is back in 1951, so the very first school with this, um, with this spirit. And he wrote in a letter to these um, people that were really like heroically pulling this effort ahead. He wrote um, in a letter to them these words. Um, he said, the school, with an exclamation point, knowing all that they were putting into it, the school is the children, the parents of the children, and the teachers all together in a unity of intentions, a unity of joys and joyful sacrifices. And I love this um, line, if you will. I mean, I love the fact that it's from a letter sent to these people who were really you know, pulling this great project ahead. Um, it was sent with a lot of love and care. But I like it because it describes a real friendship between the parents and the faculty and staff. And it makes sense when you think about it. Um, parents and teachers have the same goal, which is the flourishing of the student. And we grow in knowledge and trust over the years we spend together. Um, and in the case of the Oak, in case of Oakcrest, it's really the most formative years of a girl's life. So it's in the spirit of friendship that we put this evening together. And the aim is to share with you how we see school, with an exclamation point. <laughs> we're in school. We're here to talk about school. Um, and we're going to start with a big picture of our educational mission. And then we're going to go into some very practical issues that we think are important and helpful to grapple with so that your daughter can have a very fruitful experience, a very happy and fruitful experience in her middle and upper school years. And to give the big, big context, Ocrest was founded uh, 43 years ago with a very clear and deep mission regarding the nature and purpose of education. Um, in the history of the school, we've always had a very solid curriculum, and we've been blessed with committed and talented, and even sometimes brilliant all-female faculty, um, so many of whom are remembered with deep respect and gratitude by our alum. We're not a school that's had a record of chasing the latest educational fad. We have seen the wisdom of staying the course while being open to responding to the needs of our students. And since I've been here for 10 years, which hardly seems possible to me, but it, it is actually true, I've had the privilege of knowing personally many graduates. And in moving to the permanent campus, and this is something Terry knows very well, we made a very concerted effort to connect with as many of our alum as possible, and we achieved, a, we achieved that largely. Um, so we really have very personal relationships and we know the lives of our alum. And it's been so impressive and also instructive to meet the, quote, girls who went to Ocrest in the 80s, the 90s, uh, the 2000s. So we know from this, um, we can say we have the data, that the Ocrest education serves women exceedingly well in their personal, family, and professional lives. And we want to share with you what's behind the school's excellent track record, as well as our experience in the classroom and with the girls on a daily basis. So after hearing from the women on the panel, we're going to open it up, as Elizabeth said, to questions, reflections, maybe some anecdotes, best practices. Um, we will take compliments and praise. It's always welcome. Um, and then so that, but it's really, we want it to be truly an evening of conversation. And then we hope that we'll all come away, all of us, 
with insights and practical tips so that we can be even more united and more effective as a team in guarding the, uh, guiding the girls through their education. So now I'm gonna give the quick background on our panel members. Elizabeth Black, uh, Dean of Faculty and Curriculum, here to my right. Elizabeth earned a BA in Classics and Early Christian Studies. She's currently writing a master's thesis in liturgical studies. She's been teaching for 10 years, seven of those years at Oakrest. She's taught every grade here except for sixth grade and has taught the following subjects, although not all of them here. So ready for this, Latin, English, music, philosophy, geometry, and logic and rhetoric, which is a class she created for our ninth grade. Her vision of education comes from her strong background in the liberal arts and her commitment to educating the whole person. In her life outside of Oakrest, and she does have a life outside of Oakrest, <laughs> um, I'm sure of that, she um, enjoys many things, but definitely enjoys conducting a girls' choir at St. John the Beloved, and has developed a sacred music apprenticeship for high school students. And then we're gonna hear from Megan Hadley, right here. Am I Megan, give me a piece of paper. I do know Megan, she's right here. She's our Dean of Students. She teaches American history to our juniors and coaches middle school soccer and softball. She is the one alum on this panel, one of four Hadley girls who have, the youngest of four Hadley girls who have graced the halls of Oakrest. She earned a BA in history from Notre Dame and, an, and a master's also from Notre Dame through their Alliance for Catholic Education program, which brought her to Pascagoula, Mississippi. I practiced that, Pascagoula. Um, I did okay, right? Okay, that's good. Okay, she has 10 years of teaching experience, including one year in Spain. She was the Dean of Students for two years at the Willows Academy in Chicago, which is our sister school, and she returned last year to her alma mater. Megan's enthusiasm for life is something that inspires the girls on a daily basis, and I think you'll agree when you hear from her. Dr. Kat Hussman has a BS in biochemistry and a BA in Spanish. She earned them, and before going on to complete a PhD in biology from the University of Maryland, she's done postdoctoral research and an NIH intensive course called Scientists Teaching Science. Kat joined our faculty in 2015 and began the Science Olympiad program, which has been fabulous. Last year, we were the first all-girls team to compete at the state level, and Kat was voted Coach of the Year. She was a very important resource for Oakrest in the setup of our labs uh, when we moved here. And um, a I'm calling you a Renaissance woman because she is also our softball pitching coach and show choreographer. That's pretty good. And finally, Ginny Bowles, a native of Pasadena, California, uh, the oldest of nine children. She's a graduate of a classical liberal arts high school, and she earned a BA in Greek and Latin from UCLA, graduating summa cum laude and elected to uh, a member of Phi Beta Kappa. That's my Latin for tonight, both of those. <laughs> pretty good. It's Greek, Phi Beta, oh no, like I said. <laughs> summa cum laude's gotta be Latin. Summa's Latin, I know that. I know that, okay, that was good, great. We're off to a good start. No, I'm kidding. Ginny joined Oakrest in 2014 as a Latin and English teacher. Well, she served as Dean of Students for three years. She developed a number of programs for our students um, and traditions that we have here. And now this year is back full-time in the classroom, teaching history for sixth graders, seventh, 11th, and 12th graders. She's a sixth grade class dean, leading our youngest students through their first year, which is very important, the first year at Oakrest. And she's currently working on her master's degree in American history and government. So pretty impressive panel, I would say, and I know you're gonna have a lot of fun and enjoy them. So I'm gonna turn this over to Elizabeth. Thank you, Mary. I'm speaking on the academic vision um, of the school. So this will be a broad overview of um, uh, the big picture. I suppose Mary gave the, the school overview and I'm now giving the the more particular curricular overview. An Oakcrest education is a liberal arts education. Liberal arts, as their name suggests, are the studies that liberate a person from ignorance, propaganda, and uninformed opinion by training her to inquire into the very principles of knowledge, to think logically, and to discern the essential from the inessential. 
The student of the liberal arts is not content to assimilate facts and information about a subject. That would mean she's dependent upon the understanding of others. Rather, she learns to think and evaluate for herself. Consider the politically active undergraduate friend of mine who is very heavily involved in her campus political group. We would have long conversations about culture and politics, but they went no further than the political agenda she had been fed as a student. She didn't know where her ideas had come from, and she couldn't see their implications. She didn't realize that she held unexamined assumptions about the nature of society and what it means to be human. Surely now we need even more young people who are free from propaganda. In other words, our liberal arts curriculum teaches the tools of learning, how to observe carefully, to categorize this information efficiently, to recall it accurately, that's a key one, to be able to recall it, how to think clearly and well, and how to communicate beautifully and effectively. These tools are taught here systematically at the developmentally appropriate time, and they imbue every course a student takes here. A few thoughts on this. Technical skills must be learned but only technical skills in the hands of someone who can think are of any use. Any of you who, who have people working for you know this to be true. <laughs> teaching a skill to someone who can think is an easier matter than teaching someone to think. By inquiring into the why behind things, our students learn to seek and find deeper meaning to their lives. They wrestle with questions like, what meaning does my life have? Can I be happy? What is happiness? The liberal arts student sees the big picture. The individual facts and subjects that she learns find their broader meaning when seen in light of the true, the good, and the beautiful. This liberal arts education is also an education for women. As trustees of humanity, women foster communion among people and build up the humanity of others. But how can a young woman do this without understanding her own humanity and her own femininity first? This is why every young woman needs a liberal arts education, and especially needs one that understands women. An Oakcrest education recognizes that to educate a young woman in and according to her humanity is also to educate her in and according to her femininity. The education does so by integrating objective intellectual work with the formation of the person and interests of the young woman. It proposes the noble and the beautiful as desirable, and it aids the student to understand her emotions as integral to her person and helps direct them to the proper object. This vision of education imbues the person-centered school culture. It guides the virtues taught in and outside of class, extracurricular activities, and even the daily patterns and traditions of the school. Our person-centered philosophy means that we encourage each student to develop her unique gifts and to pursue excellence according to her own unique talents. Academic success lies in the student who achieves her full potential through good work, who isn't afraid of a challenge, and who loves learning. Such an education also means that our students are successful at college, even in the scientific and mathematical fields, which require a high level of specialty. This is because the students know how to learn and are able to think independently and creatively. We have students currently studying chemical engineering and engineering and, and classics at UVA, chemical engineering at Notre Dame, organic chemistry at Duke. We have students at Princeton, Columbia, and Harvard. The proof is in the pudding. But not only are they studying at these institutions, they excel, and this is key. You can't think to freshman year of college alone. Well, what happens once you're at a prestigious university? Now what? Um, our, our students excel at these universities. I'm thinking of um, a story I heard recently of a student who was um, told by her professor, the professor handed a paper back and said that he had to give her an A even though he vehemently disagreed with her position <laughs> because it was so well argued. They excel. Um, when I was teaching Latin, I would oftentimes, and this is a fun question to ask for um, Latin classes in particular, I would ask the students, why are you studying Latin? And there would be a very awkward pause. And then the brave, honest soul would venture a tentative hand and say something canned like, well, it's good on the SAT. 
and I look disgusted. And then another one tries, well, my dad studied it, and he wanted me to take it. And that gets an eyebrow. And then we, we keep going, and I ask the students, why are we studying this? And so we get, at some point, to the... I don't think they actually believe this, but some of them will say, well, we have to do it because that way we can get into college. And then I ask, well, okay, then what? And then they look at me, well, then, um, so I can get a good job. Well, then what? They look very uncomfortable at this point. <laughs> and then you get multiple answers. They usually range from, I can own a dog, to I can buy Starbucks. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and you shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> um, to etc. But of course, the big, the big answer hanging in the room that we're pushing towards is that some things are worth studying for their own sake. And getting to that point, this is helping a student understand why in the world am I bothering studying this very difficult, boring thing. In other words, academic success is only meaningful when the student can see the big picture. What is it all for? Ultimately, in that example, I'm asking my students what it means to be happy, what, what is the purpose of this, and to understand that there are certain activities that are worth doing simply because they're worth doing. This is the joy of learning, teaching them to see the joy of learning. Hopefully, of course, as the Latin teacher, you, you have quite a task ahead of you because how to, how to help a student find joy in objectively difficult material and objectively um, dry material. Quite a challenge. I'm asking them to consider what it means to be happy and hopefully how to learn how to be happy. Lastly, I'd like to speak to the unity of our academic vision. When your daughter is an Oki, she enters into an educational path that has unity and purpose. It's an integral seven-year program. There are key milestones along the way, the first being in the middle school, that the foundation of the middle school is wonder, that the students are learning to look out at creation and be in awe at the beauty and goodness of it, simply that it is the way it is. My favorite anecdote about G.K. Chesterton, the famous British writer, his wife came bringing him a cup of tea one day, and he, she opens the door, and he jumps up, and he turns to her, and he says, Francis, the grass is green, or something like this. It might have been the sky is blue, I don't remember. She's like, yes, Gilbert, you've been at your books too long. The grass is green. <laughs> But the point is, it could have been purple. God could have made it purple, and he didn't. He made it green, and that's incredible. So the, the wonder is being the foundation of knowledge. Yes, you can memorize the fact the grass is green, or you, it's self-evident, but what, what's the wonder behind that that makes the student impelled to learn more? Other milestones in the middle school are the most courageous American competitions, of course, as you, you're familiar with. These, these are really teaching the students the elements of research, and the elements of speaking publicly, thinking clearly. This is then taught formally in the ninth grade with the, the logic and rhetoric class, where the students learn the foundations of human thought. And then this carries into the 10th grade, where the strength, that kind of formal education that happens in ninth grade, is then applied very strategically to the writing and the debating skills. In junior year, then we have the, um, the moral theology class, which is very key. This is where the students start seeing that, um, that beauty is a, has been around them, right? That the natural world is beautiful, but really in beauty is also in the human person. So they study the nature. What does it mean to be a human? And then also, what, it, what does it mean? Um, what is virtue and what is vice? So they study those, those questions. Senior year, the senior year culminates with two things. One is the philosophy course, where the students are formally introduced to the history of philosophy and the history of human thought um, as a way to wrestle for themselves with these big questions. You can see how that would be the capstone. And then also, along with that, is the senior thesis as well. And this is the culmination of all of their the, the, um, the logic skills that they've learned, the wonder that they um, has been underpinning all of the courses, and then um, their debating skills that they've developed as well. So the senior thesis is the capstone. 
Perhaps I'd, I'd mentioned these as being milestones, but perhaps a milestone isn't quite the right word. These moments in the curriculum do more than mark new steps in the intellectual growth of the student. They positively contribute to her intellectual and personal formation. They form her to be a free woman who knows and loves all things true, good, and beautiful. For this reason, academic success here at Oakcrest is holistic. It occurs when the person has learned to work hard and well, to think logically and clearly, and to find delight in and love learning for its own sake. Thank you. Megan. Megan Hadley is up next. She will speak on order. She's going from, I'm, well, I'm the abstract, and Megan's going to be very specific. Very so we're concrete. getting nuts and bolts out here. Um, but, but the nuts and bolts are only helpful if you understand where you're going, right? The, your, your roadmap directions aren't any use unless you know where you're going. So mine is providing where are we going, and then we have the how for Miss um, Hadley. I'm typecast, I'm a nuts and bolts kind of girl. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I got- Order and prioritize, yes. prioritizing. So order and prioritizing, I definitely, when I was just thinking about what I wanted to say, like looking in the mirror, re-examining my own pr best practices, I was like, okay, order and <laughs> prioritizing, here we go. Um, so I think some of your daughters, and if you have multiple, da multiple daughters at the school, it could be different for each of them, but some of them do this kind of pretty intuitively and are good at it, and others, need a lot more guidance. So a lot of it comes from just knowing your own daughter and knowing where she is at. Um, but just kind of a plug. So I think order, work ethic, discipline, focus. Obviously these are, this is a panel on academic success. So these definitely help lead your daughter to academic success. But at the same time, they are pretty much what she has, right? One of the big areas she has right now to grow in virtue. Like these are really important virtues for her to grow in. And school is the vehicle, is a major vehicle that she has to grow in virtue at this stage of her life. So it's not just being ordered for ordered sake and just to get a good grade. It's also a really, really important kind of laying the groundwork for her because these are going to be good, good habits, virtues that she's going to carry with her for the rest of her life. So it is worth it, even though it might seem like. <laughs> um, so I think that the goal of this panel was to be really practical. So I'm going to try to kind of give you three nuggets that hopefully, hopefully reflect real life scenarios that maybe will ring true. You're like, oh yes, my daughter says that. Um, and equip you just with some ideas. So I threw lots of ideas in in the hopes that something sounds interesting and just grab onto what sounds interesting. So first scenario, your daughter walks in after basketball practice. She looks absolutely whipped. She's sweaty, she's hungry, and she definitely needs a shower. <laughs> um, so instead of jumping in and asking, what's your homework? Why not ask, what are your priorities tonight? Um, so in asking what her priorities are, I think one of the big things that students have trouble with in terms of order and prioritizing is deadlines, because they've got short-term horizon, they've got a long-term horizon. And we as adults, we have those as well, but we have hopefully learned over time to balance how to prioritize our short-term horizon and our long-term horizon, but they're still figuring that out. Um, so trying to help her think about deadlines and how to prioritize what needs to get done now without losing sight of what also needs to get done down the road, that bigger assignment, that bigger paper. So um, just in my own experience, and you probably, this rings true, that students oftentimes prioritize what they actually want to do. Like the more like interesting, like the subject that they like or the more interesting task that they have, but that's not necessarily how the prioritizing needs to happen. So helping, just especially in middle school, think that through with them of are you just procrastinating the thing you don't want to do uh, versus how do we actually prioritize? Um, you know, even if the teacher does not explicitly take a big assignment and break it into smaller chunks, can you help your daughter do that to create a long-term long goal and create it into kind of smaller-term horizon goals? Um, and obviously, Middle school is probably going to need more explicit instruction with that. I would encourage by upper school that you're a little bit out of the weeds, although some upper school students might need a little bit of help with this. But the idea is to like be stepping back a little bit by the time they're in upper school and letting them maybe a little bit of try and, trial and error in their own time management. Um, when I was in high school, and probably here actually in some study skills class, they introduced us to the Eisenhower box or the Eisenhower matrix. Have you guys ever? Seen it before? Marty wanted me to make a visual, so I did. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so the idea of it is that you, uh, apparently, I don't know if it's true or not, but President Eisenhower used this as a way to prioritize his own tasks. So you've got urgent and non-urgent and important and non-important. So I was thinking about it in terms of like, um, a lot of times for adults, they say, uh, what do they say? They say, do, decide, delegate, delete. <laughs> All right? um, but in terms of students, I was thinking, you know, for the, for the important and urgent thing in their life, that's the test that's tomorrow. Like that is urgent. And it is very important that they prioritize that thing, that they should be studying for that thing that's probably a significant portion of their grade. Um, we'll talk more about this one. Oh, sorry. We'll talk more about this one here in a second. The non-important and urgent in their life, um, I think, is like the text from the friend. It, maybe even it's about homework, where they feel that it's very urgent. I need to answer that, te like that text, Mom. You don't understand. Like Susie is depending on it. Um, but really what it amounts to is it often amounts to just an, inter an interruption where they're just constantly being kind of dragged away from whatever they're doing. Um, your non-urgent and non-important, that's going to be like excessive TV, social media use, which really just amounts to a distraction while they're working. Um, and hopefully, I mean, not that it needs to be deleted altogether, but when they're trying to focus on homework, it ought to be. Um, and then this important and non-urgent, and that's like, that's family time. That's hobbies. You might think hobbies is down here, but it really is very important, although perhaps not urgent, that they're doing other things with their day. Um, and a lot of times this gets the shaft because we're here. Like, at least that's the way I feel. Versus the time to set goals, to plan, to kind of give time to the things that aren't always the kind of the most pressing issue that we have. So the goal is to help them get here, order this, so that they can spend more time in this box, if you will. So here we are. How was that, Marty? Did you like my visual? All right. <laughs> um, so just one more kind of, I guess, thought about priorities and asking what are your priorities. I think that it's going to look different for each student. So for example, middle school students should be prioritizing play, probably. Like they should be coming home and spending, have a snack, and then 30, 30 minutes, 45 minutes of just Free play, go outside if it's a nice day, or read if you want to read. Like this idea of like, come home, sit down, do your homework. That can be really hard for a middle schooler. And then um, if your daughter tends towards perfectionism, right, her priority might be sleep, not the 99, right? Like if, she is, if she tends to say, like, I need to stay up to 3 a.m. to study for this test. Like, you don't understand, Mom. I need to do that. Like, you told me to do my best, and that's what doing my best looks like then she might need to be told, no, you need to prioritize sleep. You need to prioritize showering and eating. <laughs> I, had a, I had a mentor, not here, at my old school. I was like, did you shower? You know, like, <laughs> she's like, no, I was too busy. I'm like, no. <laughs> um, so not what's your homework, but what are your priorities? Help them prioritize, because they're learning it. They, they really need our help in trying to learn that. So that's scenario one. Scenario two. Your daughter comes home and she's in a rage. Her history teacher is a witch, <laughs> right? She has to sign a five-page primary source document that you got to read. Might as well be in Russian. It's not in Russian, but it might as well be in Russian. Um, you know, her math teacher only assigns her questions one to five, but each one has an A to G. So it's like they, you know, um, you know, she's reading Scarlet Letter and she has to read a chapter, but like. She really does not care what happens to Hester Prynne. Like, she doesn't care. I didn't. Um, <laughs> so she comes home, and of course, she word vomits this on you because you're her parent. She gets in the car, I've got this and this and this and this and this. Um, and so instead of saying, wow, you have a lot of homework tonight, <laughs> she probably does, um, how about saying, how can you work most efficiently tonight? Because right, when it comes down to it, even if she's got her priorities straight, if she's not working efficiently, that can really be a, uh, a, 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 I don't know, a, a block to working well. So the whole, the old truism of work smarter, not harder, I think is really important. They've got to learn to do this. Um, so how can you work most efficiently? So when I was brainstorming, they have so many distractions to time management. Distractions you didn't have, distractions I didn't even have. And I kind of feel for them a little bit, right? They have just screen time, so social media, TV, texting, music, 
right? Um, a lot of them claim that they need to listen to music to pay attention. Why not listen to some classical music? I always want to listen to a good marching beat. Like a, a, <laughs> that can keep you moving forward. Um, uh, there's study halls here, which are a gift, but can be a distraction. They've got friends. It's very tempting to want to chat with their friends. Um, even a place to study, like even just thinking about their physical space at home. Do they have a place to study? Um, with regard to kind of with cell phones, I read a study once that said that they were trying to test basically even if you successfully resist the temptation of looking at your phone, is your focus compromised? And obviously, well, the answer is not obviously. The answer is yes, according to this study, that we have a limited amount of focus. And so even when we successfully don't look at the phone, we have spent some of our focus not looking at the phone. So we're not as efficient at the tasks that the, in the study that the um, people were given. And so they basically tested what is the most efficient way, or what's the, what's the best way to combat this, and it's proximity to your cell phone. Basically, the closer your cell phone was to you, the more focus you needed to successfully resist the urge to look at it. So if it was on your person, that was the worst. If it was in the room, it still took a piece of focus away. So the, pretty much the answer was your cell phone needs to not be in your room when you're trying to do work. Um, so I've even thought about that for my own work, like when I'm working in my office. How can I kind of most efficiently do deep work? So um, another, thing, another thing about working efficiently would be trying to chunk the things that they do. A lot of us do this just naturally, but I remember when I learned this in study skills being like, wow, that's interesting. So a lot of times just chunking by time where you take 25 minutes, right, focused work, don't move for those 25 minutes, even if five minutes of them are like, you know, every time you realize you're doing that, try to come back. Um, and then when the 25-minute timer goes off, then you get a five-minute break. Right? And every fourth break, taking a little bit of a longer break. Um, the timer, you, it would seem less efficient. Like, I should just power through, work for an hour, right? But that timer pr provides a little bit of accountability and urgency. And then the break is also an incentive and kind of helps keep um, fatigue from setting in. So chunking by time, it's, it's a muscle, right? They got to build it up. So don't move for those 25 minutes. Resist the urge. Resist the urge. Um, and slowly over time, that really, it does really help. Um, and then another thing would be kind of thinking about chunking things by task. So trying um, to limit the amount of interruptions they have that pull them away from a given task that they have to kind of like overcome inertia to re-enter the task. So the thing I was thinking about most is if they're writing a paper, right, the amount of like either email, checking their email or getting a text from a friend, every single time, it's not an intentional break of like, I'm going to go get the blood flowing. It's just a little like, ding, and their attention gets pulled away. And every time that happens, they've got to re-enter the task of writing the paper. And that takes a lot of energy. So trying to decrease those kind of interruptions that keep them from, that will allow them to stay in the task um, as much as possible. So, um, and then this is just, I guess, kind of, I don't know if it's a personal plea or what, but time management is gonna involve trial and error. And experience is a very strong teacher. It's a very, very strong teacher. So if they're studying for a test, maybe they procrastinated for a test, and they're, they tell you, mom, I have to stay up. Like, it's 1 a.m., I don't care, I have to stay up, I, I need to study for this math test. Um, make them go to bed, right? And then the next day, don't let them stay home or go, maybe go into school late because they're tired. Because um, although that seems like a short-term fix, we're playing the long game here. Like, we're not thinking about them in college, we're thinking about them when they're 30 years old, right? Um, and so... It might kind of hurt in the moment, or they're like, oh, I'm, like she's making me go take this math test, and I'm not ready for this math test. Um, but that's okay. She might be a little unprepared. She might not do as well in the math test. And when she comes home, talk it out with her. How can, that, that feeling probably didn't feel very good, right? How can we avoid that in the future? Um, but experience is really a strong teacher, more, more so ever than words. So that's scenario number two. Um, kind of trying to, to work smarter. Scenario number three, your daughter comes home from school on a Friday afternoon and throws her backpack in the darkest corner of her bedroom. 
You've grown inside because every weekend, no matter how relaxing or rejuvenating the weekend, Sunday evening brings a unique type of terror and panic and misery in any household, right? Sunday night homework, panic sets in, right? So instead of groaning inside, ask, what's your game plan for the weekend, right? Um, so trying to think about using your weekends, um, not that weekends should be dedicated to homework, but trying to use weekends smart, um, smartly. So um, for example, you could communicate family obligations about that weekend as early as possible so they know what their other obligations are besides schoolwork and social um, things that they might have with their friends. So if you have grandma's 90th birthday, right, hopefully that's not sprung on them at the last minute when maybe they were planning on doing their English paper. Um, also this idea of using weird windows. I'm a teacher, I always have a book with me, always. Um, and I very much use weird windows. How easy is it, especially if they're in upper school, maybe they have a phone of when they're, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store or waiting at the post, no one goes to the post office. I go to the post office. But, um, but weird windows where like they pull out their phone and they might kind of scroll through texts or who knows what if they have social media. Um, but instead pulling out their English book, right? And just even if they get five pages done, using these weird windows because they really add up. Um, and can help them work more efficiently. It's not like, usually the weird windows are not stuff that's actually gonna get anything else done, so it's not like they're missing out on other things. It's just trying to take five minute windows here and there and make them more efficient. And the last thing is um, trying to use weekends as a launching point for the rest of the week. So maybe have a time on Sunday evening where you talk about kind of family obligations for the week. Like, okay, don't forget Thursday you have a doctor's appointment. Um, Tuesday you've got a basketball, or she'll help her with this. Tuesday I've got a basketball game, and help her kind of plan out her week from the weekend, and that can help create a sense of calm during the week. At least that's helpful for me as an adult. Um, so best practice, best practice. Um, so finally, just to kind of sum it up, focus, it's like a muscle, it atrophies without use. <laughs> um, and so there might be bad habits that have been formed just because, I mean, I have bad habits. It's, it's hard. Um, don't go home and be like, well, I got new sheriff in town. I went to this great panel, and this is what we're going to do in this household from now on. Because um, that obviously, don't implement like 12 ideas at once. Um, but maybe just take a few nuggets and think how this might look in your family. This is all very, supposed to be helpful for your family. Um, and then also, one of the reasons we prioritize and work efficiently when it's time to work is so that we can get into the non-urgent, non important box of the Eisenhower matrix. So we also want to make, we want to prioritize that as well. Um, and Christmas can be a great time for giving attention to this kind of stuff. So just two thoughts. You know, how is your daughter going to spend her time when she's not working over Christmas break? She's got this great break. Um, you know, maybe you could go with her on an outing, one outing this Christmas that um, corresponds to an interest she has, a hobby she has, um, or there's a really cool exhibit at a museum that corresponds to an interest that she has. Something to kind of foster this to show her we also have to prioritize this, these types of things. Um, maybe instead of giving a thing at Christmas, you can give an experience of something that corresponds. Like you can give her tickets if she, if she really likes history to go see Harriet Tubman movie or you know, whatever it is, right? That it's not a thing, but it's an experience. Just um, when I was eight years old, the, um, there was a huge exhibit that came to Delaware on the Romanovs, the, Russian, the last Russian czars. And it was a huge deal that th th this was coming to the United States. I've actually gone back and looked up articles because I was like, did that really happen? Like, I, I think it did. And sure enough, my mom dragged us to Delaware to go see this exhibit on the Romanovs. And it is one of the most formative things that has ever happened in my life. Because I remember all my siblings rushed through it. And I was 10. And I went through that thing so slowly. And I got to the point, they had a swatch of, um, uh, what's it? Wallpaper, that's what it's called. A swatch, <laughs> a swatch of wallpaper in the museum exhibit that had blood on it from the room where the Romanovs had been executed. And I remember being 10 years old, just like, mind blown. 
Um, and it really, it sparked a huge interest in history that obviously I then kind of pursued as a career. But that took a lot of work for my parents, like to bring us to Delaware to do this. Like I'm, I'm the seventh of 10 kids. And I just am so appreciative that my mom did that because of, um, it was just, it was unique, it was interesting, and it started a really, really long love affair with Russian history and history in general. So um, just think, maybe do a little planning about how to spend Christmas. Awesome. Next we have Dr. Kat Husband. Now, how do I say this title? With what tone of voice? STEM 4.0 or bust? <laughs> STEM 4.0 or bust? <laughs> uh, I think the second one. The second, the second one. Okay, we'll go with sure that tone. Yeah. No, it's There's uh, a lot. Yeah, the tone can change. So that's true. So hopefully, I mean, we've heard so many great things tonight about uh, what encompasses a liber liberal arts education and such wonderful ways to implement these practices as well. And so, you know, a tough act to follow here. Um, and my topic I get to discuss with you tonight is a little bit more sensitive because it it's very personal to every individual here in this room. Assessment. And in our students' minds, grades. No one likes to admit it, but self-reflection and assessment are difficult to take in at times. Asking ourselves, how am I really doing on this virtue or this assignment or this topic? And even worse, subjecting ourselves to criticism of someone else, giving us an idea of how we're progressing in a given area. What is our growth, our knowledge, our understanding? Are we thriving in our goals? Are we progressing somewhat towards it? Or are we wading in the water barely getting by? In order to understand the philosophy for grades from the faculty at Oakcrest, we must begin with looking at the basic question, why grades at all? We all know that accountability to each other and our goals is an important way to reach and even exceed them. In any career setting, individuals complete self-evaluations, peer evaluations, and evaluations overall to assess their goals and expectations at certain intervals. I remember in graduate school, I was asked to write an evaluation for the professor I worked for to contribute to her tenure package. I needed to write updates for the yearly NSF grant I was on that funded my graduate work. And we here at Oakcrest are observed by peers and administration to ensure that our practice maintains the high standard we set ourselves to. All types of accountability such as this allow for us to assess our progress, direct our efforts in a concrete, planned way, and carry out work in a better method. Thus, it is natural for this type of practice to be present in the lives of students as well. Grades here at Oakcrest reflect accurately student progress in each respective discipline in various ways. Each discipline contains a breakdown of components of each grade, examining not just the content knowledge based on a written summative assessment, but to assess what we value in participating in the journey of acquiring knowledge and transforming it into an original thought. As students progress through the years, they strive to look more like the portrait of an Oakcrest graduate, confident and understanding and with, of the wisdom of the beauty in the world present. To understand this fully, they must display their understanding consistently throughout their education. We are providing them an education and method of feedback that it's not just for high school, but for college and beyond. Grades are not a means to an end. Our goal is not to get them the grade, but to understand and enjoy the journey of learning the material. This is why our policy of keeping the gradebook closed to the public exists. Our current culture of immediate feedback on all fronts has led to a population focused on earning numbers and not taking in the big picture. The joy of learning that we want them and that we are that want them to understand and that we're discussing here tonight. All too frequently, students who think it is necessary to earn 100% on every assignment are missing key pieces in the course to actually reach that goal that we're setting of learning set out by the teachers. Their learning then is geared towards a numerical goal instead of taking pleasure in learning and understanding the world around themselves. As they mature through the program at Oakcrest, we encourage them to inquire deeply about the meaning and implications of content, not attain just a numeric grade. We encourage our students to be confident in their abilities and not measure themselves against each other. You may be thinking, well, this is fine and dandy. This is nice, high-flying discussion about, you know, oh, grades are 
you know, Torah club, okay, that's great. But what I really want for my child is to pass their high school and be competitive <laughs> for entering college, right? We, well, that's true. We all want our students to get into college. We all want them to go to a great college. We want them to progress in their learning, continue to grow in intellect and into virtue, and to develop their God-given talents further in an environment that will challenge them and stretch them beyond the walls of Oakcrest. But for students to thrive in an environment such as this on their own, they must be equipped with resilience. A low A or a high B in a class is not going to exclude them from the finest echelon of education in existence. Students here consistently apply to, matriculate in, and succeed in higher education. We have the evidence in our alumni relationships and stories we hear from those who have gone on from Oakcrest to complete amazing feats. The truth is, most of the higher ed courses that they'll take after Oakcrest are not designed for students to achieve 100%. Moreover, earning 100% means that the student is not challenged in the course, and they're not going to grow further. Like any reward system, we're, we're conditioned to desire a certain outcome. When the outcome does not meet our expectations, we end up feeling defeated. If we are setting up our students to think that we need to get 100% or not sufficient, then we are conditioning them inappropriately for the journey ahead. You can't sprint a marathon. We don't want our students to sprint in every class and win in every race. We want them just to continue getting faster, keep improving, and keep desiring to improve. We don't want them to sprint through high school with unrealistic expectations of college curriculum, only to be tripped up in their first quarter by a challenge and not see the point in continuing the race. If we continue to award 100% to every student, that fake feedback of success becomes the narrative, not the journey. It is essential that at this developmental stage for them to know that they may not achieve and know every answer to every question. And that's okay. But to look at what they got wrong. Okay, see, how can they improve? What did I mess up there? How can they keep progressing? They're not just mastering a content area. They're not just memorizing and then reciting back. They're learning how to approach problems, overcome obstacles, and flex their intellectual muscle. These, skill goes, these skills go beyond, far beyond what a number can summarize. For example, in our science curriculum at Oakcrest, we simply don't learn content and rules to complete problem sets and then do that over and over again. We look at how to apply principles and mathematics to our content, how to synthesize original data in our labs, and how to become scientifically literate through understanding how scientific studies are presented in various types of publications. They don't just collect data, they critique experiments, methods, and conclusions completed by others. For example, in our AP Chemistry class, we examine a paper in our kinetics unit that discusses uh, substances elimination from the blood compared to the brain. Our discussion is rich in both analysis of the experiments performed and the data collected, as well as the implications in current health crises that is currently affecting teens disproportionately to the population. Practically, a lot of projects we do in the real world will encounter challenges, times when things should work and just don't. In science, for example, you can try and try and try to make an experiment work the way you think it should work. But if nature doesn't behave according to the way that you want it to, you can't make it behave that way. You need to reframe your thinking. We need our students to get used to reframing their thinking that when they encounter a challenge, not simply just accept it or get upset. We need them to look at challenges and then to face them with fresh eyes. Our high expectations for our students continues to serve the students well on their quest after Oakcrest. We frequently hear back from alumni on how well prepared they are compared to their peers at their chosen university in writing, in their science classes, and overall their transition academically. For example, a student who completed AP Chemistry at Oakcrest came back the next year after her first year in college, sharing that she earned top grades in her organic chemistry class in a top school. Another student remarked about our chemistry class her, in college that it was easy after the AP Chemistry class that she took at Oakcrest. In addition, they come back thankful. Thankful that the expectations in college were not a shock. Thankful that they know how to work through a difficult task and not get discouraged by it. They are thankful that they understand how to enjoy the race, even if they don't win the prize. Next, Ginny Bowles will speak on the joy of learning. I have a fun topic, joy of learning. 
It is the joy of learning. That is a hallmark of Oakcrest. If you come here during the school day, the joy is palpable. It's palpable in the hallways. What you probably what you don't get to see is that it's very palpable in the classrooms. Our girls laugh in their classes. They have those no way moments. The joy is there in the classrooms. There are discussions. I have had classes where I said, okay, sorry guys, it's lunchtime, class is over. No, please, can we stay? That has happened before. They want to stay to complete their discussions. Sometimes the discussions happen after 3 p.m. We were taking some girls. We were invited to a lecture at a college campus. We were driving a couple high school girls. And in the back of the van, there was this heated debate. Aeneas should not have left Dido. That was the wrong. No, he should have. He was following his duty. They were debating Virgil's Aeneid, which they were reading in Latin their junior year of high school. So these, they love what they learn. When I was preparing to give a little talk at an open house, kind of an admissions event, I decided, OK, I'm going to survey the students and ask them, what do you love most about Oakcrest? So I would have something to say at the admissions event. So I asked random girls here in the lobby, what do you like most? The teachers, my teachers, my teachers, my classes, my classes. The girls love what they're learning here. The teachers also love what we're learning and what we're teaching. My, the history teachers, English teachers, Latin and Spanish all share an office together. It's the coolest place to hang out. The discussions are just vi intellectually vibrant, interesting, um, so just intelligent women in that room who can speak interdisciplinarily. So it's no wonder that they translate that joy and enthusiasm into the classes that they teach. Sure does. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there is joy here at Oakcrest, but that does not mean that your daughter is going to love every class. That does not mean that she's going to click with every teacher. That does not mean that she's going to enjoy every math assignment for her homework. But our attitudes, your attitudes as parents, our attitudes as mentors and teachers, our attitudes can help them, can help shape their attitudes towards the difficult things. We can help them discover and foster the joy of learning. So one, I'm going to talk about three ways. The first way is how do we model the joy of learning? And modeling that in two ways. How do we take interest in their learning? And how do we take interest in our own Learning. That's how we can model the joy of learning for them. So first thing, how do we take interest in what they are learning? How can I do that? I think asking the right questions and finding the right moments to ask those questions. The drive home from school, if you drive her, the dinner table could be a great place to be talking about what they're learning in the classroom. Now, I offered this advice with caution because it can backfire with, OK, I want to ask her. I want to show interest. I'm going to, what, what are you learning about, honey? It was all boring. So it can, it can backfire of, of you wanting to ask, what are you learning about, and getting the mute teenage girl mumble as, her, as your response. So you can't force that conversation. If your daughter's in middle school, you might still have time to kind of bring that into your family dynamic naturally, especially if she's in sixth grade, before that teenage jadedness sets in. So start that habit as young as you can, because it will get harder when she becomes a teenager, when she's more moody, when she's more tired. Um, the teenage girls do get more reticent. But I think part of it can be how you phrase it. So in my mentoring, when I mentor girls, I've stopped asking, um, do you like your classes? Instead, I ask, what's your favorite class? Because asking it that way, what's your favorite class presupposes you're getting good stuff. You have good classes. I'm just asking for your favorite. Instead of asking the, do you like your classes? No, I hate them all. <laughs> just because it's 4 o'clock and she's hungry. <laughs> so when you ask her, what's your favorite class, you're, you're going to get the better stories. You're going to get the highlights. You're going to get the good things. And you can open up that conversation of, I really love English. Miss so-and-so, she is just brilliant, or whatever. But you're going to ask. So part of it is just asking the right questions to elicit the good things from your daughter. Because she is happy here. We see it here. And also, this requires patience. Because sometimes she is going to want to tell you all about what she's learned. And sometimes you might be a little bit too busy to hear it, or you've been hearing it for the last 20 minutes. It reminds me of a story growing up. So at our dinner table, we were always talking about what we learned, especially history. And 
what my youngest sister, she's the seventh child. So she often, the older six, usually monopoly, monopolized the dinner table conversation. So, but one night she got her turn. The little second grader got her turn. Today in class, we read the book Leif the Lucky, which is about Leif Erikson the Viking. As a second grader, she had not yet learned the art of summarizing. So she proceeded to tell us basically page by page what happened to Leif the Lucky. And it was going on at 20 minutes of Leif the Lucky. And then he ate this for breakfast. Okay. And she finally got to the point where she said, and then Leif the Lucky died. And her two mean older brothers went, hooray! And she burst out in tears. So it takes, when she is excited to share, it takes a lot of patience to listen, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I think another thing when we're asking, trying to ask, show interest in what she's learning, we do, I think we need to ask it in a detached and authentic way. Because it's very easy. What, when we're asking, what did you learn today, it's not supposed to be quizzing her to see, does she remember all the explorers that are going to be on her test next week? It's not quizzing her. It's not testing her to make sure she was paying attention. Those, those kinds of ways of asking, she's not going to enjoy. That's not the love of learning. That's not learning for learning's sake. We need to ask in a way, I'm interested because I'm interested. I want to know what you're learning because I find it interesting too. I'm interested in you and what you find the most exciting. So we need to ask it in a way that is authentic and that reflects a true interest on our part about what does she love to learn. It needs to come from an authentic place, especially for a teenage girl, because teenage girls can pick up on inauthenticity very, very quickly. One thing that could help is rereading some of the, or reading, for some of us, the books on the Ocrest English curriculum. Even if it's the sixth grade list, or the 12th grade list. The book, the English curriculum here is excellent. We would all do well from reading those books one more time. And then you have a great thing to talk to your daughter about. Either, oh my gosh, I'm about to get to this part. Yeah, isn't that amazing when you did this? You can have exciting moments, plot moments to talk about, deep moments about characters. But you can also, some of the books are challenging. So if we're tackling the Iliad, which maybe we haven't read since high school, or maybe we haven't read ever, we can go to our ninth grade daughter and say, so the Iliad, I'm trying to get through it, and I don't get Achilles. Is he supposed to be the good guy or the bad guy? And then your ninth grade daughter is going to have so much fun saying, oh, please, mom, don't you know? Achilles, Homer in the Greek epic style, blah, blah, blah. And she's, that's going to elicit. When she gets to correct you and teach you, she's going to love it. So just that could be one tip is read the books, because it will get a lot out of it. We might have something to talk to our daughters about. Then the second aspect of this modeling is, do they see us enjoy learning? Part of that is, what do they see us reading? Do they see us reading things that are a little bit deeper, to, that expand our own culture? Or do we just read for entertainment? What kind of places do we visit? What kind of things, movies and shows do we watch? Do we, are we seeking our own continuous learning? And all of us have different interests. I mean, in this room, I'm sure there's engineers, there's computer programmers, there's history buffs, there's musicians. We each have our own area that we're interested in. How do we pursue it? How does she see us loving what we do, loving what we learn, and trying to go deeper into it? And then how do they see us respond when we're confronted with something new and difficult? If someone's talking about you're, you're, you're in conversation, it's Thanksgiving, you've got the relatives, the in-laws over, and she sees you talking to Uncle so-and-so, and Uncle so-and-so is talking about, I don't know, space because he's a space geologist, and you go, oh, I remember learning about the stuff in fourth grade, I don't remember any of it. Okay, so now she's seen how you approach information that you don't know, of used to know that, don't know about it, don't care, instead of wow, can you explain that to me again? How does, I, I remember learning that how it worked. Can you explain it again? So we can model an interest in being stretched ourselves when we're introduced with new things. So the modeling, the joy of learning by showing her that we're interested in what she's learning and showing her that we're interested in continuing our own learning, that's a huge way of helping her develop the joy of learning, but there's two other areas that I want to touch on, and these focus more on when the going gets tough, that there is joy of learning even in the hard stuff. Because I think it's important that the girls learn, A, that there is joy and satisfaction from having done something difficult, 
and B, that we have our greatest joy by knowing that our work has value when it's offered up and done for the love of God. So that first aspect, the joy and the satisfaction from having done something that is difficult. Because the girls are not going to enjoy every Latin translation. They're not going to enjoy every, every physics problem set. They're not going to find every class lecture stimulating. They're going to come home and complain. They're going to be at school and complain. And our reaction to their negative reaction, our reaction is pedagogical. The way we respond to their complaining can help them or it can feed the beast. So when she comes home saying, oh my gosh, I have so much homework. Yeah, oh, yeah this is just busy work. Why do your teachers do this? You're feeding the beast. You're missing an opportunity there. Or if she gets in the car, so was it another boring lecture today in history class? I mean, that, that's just going to feed it. It's not helpful to reinforce the idea that education should be a Broadway production. Every class, every assignment. I love this. This is so fun. That's not going to happen, and it's not life. We're not, we shouldn't get a thrill from everything we do in school, even though a lot of it is wonderful and fun in many ways. Another, Kat touched on this, but their, their best learning is going to come when they're being stretched. That's when they're really going to stretch themselves in their academics, in their education. It's going to be in the harder things. It's really easy to say. It's not so easy to witness when she's going through those harder things. But we see as teachers, students today do really want to be spoon-fed. They just want you to tell them what the answer is. They're going to memorize it, and that's what they're going to write down on the test and turn in. They don't like being pushed, no, you need to analyze this. No, you need to engage your critical thinking. But what's the answer? You need to figure that out, either by writing an essay about it and digging into those topics or doing a lab report. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. But when they do that, that is when they've really learned. And when they turn that assignment in, they're going to go, wow, I worked hard on that. Or I actually discovered, because I found this cool insight as I was trying to work through proving this thesis on this essay. So they, that's where the real innovation comes in, the creativity, the real learning, and the satisfaction from a job well done. They have to use their own reasoning skills to move from evidence to conclusion, not memorize an answer and spit it back out on a test. So as Megan said, you know, when she procrastinates, don't swoop in and save her. I think the same thing when she has this hard assignment, don't swoop in and save her, even by saying, kind of pitying words to her. Maybe instead tell her a time when you were the most pushed in high school or in college or in middle school or in your professional work, when you had to tackle something that was scary, that was daunting, that was hard, but how you did it and how proud you were after it. What she needs from you in those moments where she has that tough essay or when she has that tough test, she just needs hope. She needs hope from you that you did it and you made it. She needs your encouragement. And she needs the hope that you trust that she can do it. If you say, no, 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 you got this, that's all she needs. And then she can tackle that really hard thing. And I think you might have had the same experience I had. My best classes in high school and college were my hardest classes. They, they sometimes even scared me as I was walking into those classes. But at the end of it, I realized that was the best. I'm signing up for that professor again. So that, that idea of, the toughest things are where we learn the most, and we do get joy and satisfaction from those classes. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on is the deepest joy, really, that she can have in her learning. And that's the no joy of knowing that her work always has value. The big things, like the essay or the studying for the test, the little things, the writing out the definition of vocabulary words, the careful, meticulous work of an algebra problem, every, all of our work has value if it is done for the love of God. And that idea, this school, as Mary mentioned at the beginning, Oakcrest is a school where the spiritual patrimony, if you will, the spirituality of the school is entrusted to Opus State. And one of the main messages is we can find God in our ordinary daily work. And one of the ways we can do that is by offering up every job that I begin, every task, I can say, God, this is for you. And the girls get that a lot. They get that in the homilies. They get that in their mentoring. They get that message in their theology class. So they hear it here a lot. But it's really, they can do it. Every algebra assignment can say, all right, God, this is for you. I'm going to do my best work as I'm doing this. This hard essay, which I am not ready to do, and I'm going to die, and it's going to take me four hours, 
God, here we go. This is for you. And you start into it. And the joy of knowing this is not wasted work. This is not difficult beyond what I can do. That if, as long as it's offered up for God, it has value. And I learned this in a very palpable way when I was a freshman in college. And I was doing, I think it must have been finals week. It was a really stress, intense crunch time. But an extracurricular that I was involved in, I needed to fill in data on an Excel spreadsheet. And it's a, do I study? Do I do this? Okay, no, I, it's the right thing. I'm going to do the data on the Excel. So I was doing it. It probably took an hour, maybe two. And I was putting in the data, putting in the data. And I hit a wrong button, and it was gone. The two hours worth of data, which I decided to do instead of studying for the finals, that was in two days. It was all gone. There was no backspace. There was no undo. I tried everything. It was just gone. And I was devastated, thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to get it all done? That was wasted. All of that work, and it's gone. And I had a kind of mentor my freshman year of college, similar to the way the, the girls had their mentors here. And I remember talking to her saying, I just spent two hours on this Excel, and it's gone, and it's wasted, and I didn't have the time to waste. And I'll never forget what she said. She said, but Ginny, you offered it up, right? And I was even more mad because I hadn't. <laughs> I didn't learn till later that you can actually offer things up retroactively. But it didn't, it didn't necessarily kind of like help in the moment. I still had a final to do. I still had to do the Excel again. But I have never forgotten that of, but Ginny, you offered it up, right? And that means that every, every mundane task, every difficult paper that I have to write for graduate school, that offering it up means this has value, and there's a joy that can't be taken away in that. So the, the kind of the wrap-up points, those main points are, I think we're going to help our daughters discover that joy of learning. If we're taking interest in what she is learning, she's going to say, oh, this is cool. Mom and Dad think it's cool, too. If we see them learning, if we help them through those difficult moments and realize there is satisfaction and joy in a difficult thing done to our best ability, and then that joy of knowing if 